The sponsor of our show today is CNE Wildlife. CNE Wildlife partnered up with North American Deer Talk. We're incredibly grateful for that. If you get a, a chance or an opportunity, say thank you to them. And the reason is really simple. They have 30 years of commitment to all natural probiotics. This commitment's really a passion for them. And they've established that through university research at Texas Tech. Whether that be their fawn paste, their top score product, their show choice, farm pack, all the various products they have, they really provide a service and a set of products that helps your herd thrive. Give Sadie a call over there at CNE and uh, order up some good stuff. We think you'll like it. We know we do. We've been uh, product users for almost 15 years now. Um, we feel it's the best around. So get you some CNE wildlife today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. It is episode 51. We're here in the middle of June. We have a returning guest. I have Mr. Gary Cook, the executive director from NADAR. That's the North American Deer Registry. Gary, how are you today? I'm good. You? I am doing really well, and I'm, I'm glad to have you back on. Thanks. It's been a year since we chatted last, yeah. um, and I know we have lots of lots of updates. Um, it's an exciting time uh, for the deer registry. There's certainly been a large amount of technological advances. I know that people are continuing to interact with the registry and, and you kind of have a, an interesting perch, which you sit on uh, as that executive director. Can you just give us a, a quick overview of kind of how the last year has gone uh, from from June to June 2021 and 2022. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely been a. I would say one of the mo one of the most challenging years we faced. We've had several, uh, but anytime you you have new technology coming out, it's always a challenge, right? Um, so yeah. So when we talked last June, we were getting ready to release the new the brand new test for CWD, and then it actually went out in about August. Um, so, you know, I guess looking back, I think the challenges have been one, just educating our customers. And I think we still have a lot to do. Uh, in fact, a new video is getting ready to come out in the next couple of weeks that will walk through with Seabury and, and us about how it works, why it's working and ask all those questions that the breeders have had, right? But in hindsight, it started off really fast. I mean, a lot of people submitted samples, um, still a lot of people submitting samples, lots of questions. Um, and we, we can get into some of those if you want today, but um, I think we're seeing um, that, that the customers are starting to understand what they're getting now, right? Um, it's, it's not a magic bullet. It's, it's, not a, um, it's not a number that you can take and just make a decision based on one number, but it is a general breeding guideline to allow them to make decisions on this disease. Um, so what we're seeing is that they're understanding it better but we feel like that they need to be more aggressive in their breeding programs and continue to use these results to make those decisions. And um, the first six months were, I was getting calls nights, weekends, early morning, late morning. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But in hindsight, I look back and go, those people were the ones that really cared about their animals and they wanted to make good decisions. Right. So, um, so we, as a, as a company, if you will, have to understand that and try to help them make those decisions. No, I think that's a, a great point. You know, we, we sometimes, um, you know, everybody has um, some part of their, their business or life where they're 
uh, customer service oriented. And you could even yep. consider that uh, as part of your, your family unit at home, yep, right? For sure. And, and, you know, the people are asking questions because they care. And, yeah. and it's, it's sometimes I know, I know for me, sometimes I, I get in a, a more defensive posture. Um, and it, it can be frustrating for me yeah. um, when I'm, I'm answering questions or, or comments over and over, but like, it's because people care. And like, I, I'm yeah. glad you said that because it, 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 it tweaked something in my brain to say, Hey, sometimes you just got to smile and, and, yeah. and, and keep rolling on. So I appreciate it. Well, I've trained our staff to be that way too. And um, again, you know, we've been doing this for how long? Remember SNP technology, right? We've been doing that since what, 16? And we still have people that don't understand what SNPs are. And so um, we have to keep educating our, our customers on, you know, what they're doing. So and it, and it just takes, you know, people calling in or us calling them over and over and over again to, I guess, explain to them. So you had mentioned SNP, and I know that there's been this uh, transition to that. I did not know it was in, in 2016, you know, some you yeah. know, se- seven years ago now. How, how is that going? I mean, are we, are we fully away from, from STRs? Yeah. And- uh, we're, getting, we're getting closer. In fact, at the last board meeting, I, I did a presentation where I showed the, the STRs and how they're, they're coming down, you know, a lot. Um, so last year we did about 12,000 STR tests, okay? The year before we did about 20. The year before that, it was like 25. Um, I told the board, I think we'll do about 7,000 this year. And, and that's because of the legacy animals. The reason we have to do those is because you can't compare SNP technology to STR technology. So we have to run them. And But we're seeing a lot fewer and it may be a lot less than 7,000. And here's why, because the new tests we're doing for CWD, when they run that, they get SNPs as well. It's all together. And so they're automatically converting those animals. And, and as we've seen, people are pulling samples out of semen tanks, um, out of their back garage or whatever, and finding these old animals to test them, well, that automatically will convert them. And so I, I still think we'll see between five and 7,000 STRs ran this year, but that's drastically down from where we were years before. Um, we, we as a board decided we're not going to, to ever stop that because I think that there's still some breeders that may need to convert later on, but we just decided that it may cost a little more to add that but we aren't going to take it away from them, but eventually everybody will be converted. So, um, so let's just fill in a, a, a little bit of that, uh, back history there. So, yeah. uh, can you talk about, um, you know, what the STR is generally, and then yeah. the transition to it. And you yeah. mentioned legacy animals, just yeah. kind of let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. So people understand what we're, what yeah, we're referencing. I can do that. I can do that. And also just keep in mind, the new CWD test is also based on SNPs as well. And so to get to where we want to go as an industry, we had to get to SNPs. And that's for parentage, that's for disease predictions, that's for characteristics like antlers. All those things have to be done by SNPs, not STR. So um, the, the STR platform, which stands for single, I'm sorry, um, stand, standard tandem repeat. Okay. And so basically, it's a scientific term that was one of the original genetic uh, ways to measure parentage or whatever else, right? And it's been it's been done that way for years. We had 18 markers. So, you know, when you submitted your animal, we had 18 markers to compare sire and dam to. Well, as you know, the the true deer business that we're in is barely, very highly inbred, if you will. And so it became harder and harder to predict those animals. And so our board, um, 
2014 saw that and said, we have to switch over. So we, we started in 2014 researching that. We hired A&M, Dr. Seabury, to come up with a SNP panel. And that SNP panel, um, I won't even tell you what that means, but it's a very long word. And uh, it basically is the same, it's the same thing as STRs. It's just a different test, if you will. So um, it's just a more complicated, more um, robust, more precise, more data that gives you more information, okay? Um, so we started in 14, we finally switched over in 16 to where we were providing that information to breeders. And we started with 400 markers for SNPs, for parentage only, okay? And and I, I can tell you just from our scientists who geeked out over it, they go, it makes things so much easier. Like it's night and day and you don't have to call a breeder on a lot of these and say, is it this one or is it that one, right? Um, so it made things so much easier. So the switch was needed and it happened. But as we, as, as we discussed, some of the breeders had, had their older animals that were still STRs. You can't compare those to SNPs. And so we had to convert those. Um, we, we spent a lot of money um, converting them for free. Like last year, we spent $85,000 by converting animals for free for those breeders so they could get everything tied together. Um, and that, that was a commitment by the board. We budgeted for that. I don't think it'll be that much this year. Um, I think we're seeing a lot fewer, as I mentioned, because of the CWD test, they're automatically converting. So, it, I mean, it was a success, right? And, you know, anytime you switch um, technology or switch, I mean, whatever, there's always those people that don't want to do it, right? I mean, I remember back in 2004, when we started doing DNA, I mean, everybody's like, I'll shake your hand and tell you which gear it is. And you have to believe that. I said, well, that's fine, but it won't go into the auction. So um, so that changed and the STR started and then SNP started. Well, what we realized was now that SNP technology will get us to the next level. And that is to help with certain diseases, right? And so um, in 2000, gosh, I don't know. 1920, we started researching that as well. And Dr. Seabury again and A&M came up with the markers for CWD. And so the rest is history, right? Um, and what, what happens is, is this platform is now 50,000 markers. So it enables us to do a lot of things like combine more disease traits on there. We also put mule deer on there. We're also getting ready to put another animal species, fallow, which we'll talk about in a minute. So it enables us to use the same platform to run all these things no i i and i pre appreciate that uh, uh explanation because i know that um you know from a from an outward perspective you know you're like why do i have to take old animals that are already dna'd and yeah. dna them again right and and that's right. the conversion process we're talking about it's right. because that they are foundation animals they are legacy animals and yeah. they have value to know uh, where they stand in the pedigree tree, also from that disease standpoint, yeah. which is which is um, uh, something that I want to move into. So, you know, CWD GPS was was released, um, you know, into the wild for commercial yeah. use. Call it end of August um, last yeah. year. Yeah. How how has that been uh, adopted? Are you finding um, most of your your samples when they they come yeah. in they're just doing parentage they're doing a combo test where they're doing cwd gps prnp and the and the parentage what is that what does that look like 
That is a really good question. And actually, I was researching that the other day. Um, what, you know, what, what we're finding out is that it was like 60-40. And, and so 60% of them are doing the new CWD test with parentage. And the other 40 are just staying with parentage. That's what we're seeing. Um, I haven't graphed it yet, but I think we're, we're seeing that number change a lot, that more people are doing CWD as we go out through the year. Um, and so I, I, I predict that it'll end up being 70-30. Because you'll, you'll still have some tried and true people that don't care about that or they don't need it, right? Um, and so I, I think it'll end up being 70-30. Gotcha. No, it's it's good to it's good to see the adoption rate. You know, it's it's like yeah. anything else, you know, it's gonna take time for um, yeah. awareness, education, things, things like we're doing right now, um, just so people yeah. continue to get a better uh, a better understanding of it. And something to note too, Josh, is so part of that 70%, one thing we committed to was for those breeders who already submitted samples to NADAR and already had them snipped, well, they, they didn't want to pay the full price again to get them back there. So we agreed to lower the price for those samples um, if they wanted to submit them for CWD. And now it's not free if, by any means, but it, it's still cheaper than what it would have been to redo it all over again. So about 30 to 40% of the CWD samples we're getting are from those that have already submitted samples to NADAR. Awesome. Um... So I know that there's been a, I guess, a concerted effort uh, from a sampling standpoint, from a physically sampling standpoint, to transition into using the TSU tubes. Yep. Have you, I know for me, I'm almost, I, I must be in the high 90 percentile rate for submissions of TSU yeah. tubes over other genetic material. Are you guys seeing that as well on your Oh, end? yeah. I, I was, I was... Um trying to look for a number here to give you um but yeah we're we're seeing over 50 percent are sending tissue tubes um and you know it's simple i mean one it's easier for the lab to process it also allows for repeats or for resampling a lot easier for the lab and so as you know when you submit hair or semen or antler core a lot of times they suck up all that dna the first time they run the sample and so there's nothing left to, to retry it again. And so with these tubes, it allows that. Also, as we talked about last time, NADAR gives the breeder a $3 credit if they use tissue tubes. I, you know, at the last board meeting, we discussed it and we're, we're gonna continue doing that this year. I don't know how long, but it encourages people to use those. And I think they they like using them. It's To me, it's easier for you guys, right? To, to be able to use those. One, you get an ear tag in, sure. plus you don't deal with the hair flying everywhere, especially if you're doing it in a, a non-humid environment where you know static is around and hairs flying everywhere so and it also makes it easier on the lab to where if they don't have to take those hairs and line them up and punch them and all that so um yeah we're, we're seeing a, a big adoption with, with that now just to let you know there has been some complaints last year that there was a shortage due to covid um that lasted for a short time um from from what i know they're up and running full speed and um what we found out is there's two different ways to get them. You can go directly to Offlex, which it may take them five months because what we're finding out is people are wanting to get things etched on those tubes. It may take you five months, but if you go straight to GeneSeq, which is our laboratory, you can get them online. And from what I hear, you're getting them in a week or so. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so the if you're, if you're looking for those TSU tubes, uh, you can go to, it's just neogen.com, type in yeah. Neo, yeah. neogen, N-E-O-G-E-N.com yeah. and the TSU tubes. Um, 
you know, I, I can't, it's, and I, I want to, I want to harp on this point because the, for, for me, just from a collection standpoint, the TSU tombs have been a game changer. Now I understand the edge case for, you know, a set of antlers on a, on a legacy buck on your farm that you need to test or an old straw semen, or you have some hair from, you know, a few generations back that's been sitting there. You need to fill in a pedigree gap, whatever that is, but for, and especially for your new coming fawns, the TSU uh, sample unit is, is incredibly uh, nice. It's efficient. It's very clean. And the amount of time I think that, and you can speak to this more that is saved at the lab and the consistency of quality of sample um, is you can't, you can't overstate it. So use the TSU uh, tubes. You don't even like, you got to pay for them up front, but you're going to get that credit on the back end. Yeah, for sure. Take care, you know, just, just use those as, as yeah. many as you can. Yeah. It makes life easier. My only recommendation is uh, don't throw them in a big bag and, and, and not <laughs> ID them when they come to the NADAR office, then it's like putting a puzzle together in NADAR office. Now we, we do fix it. We'll, we'll make sure it's okay, but it makes life easier if they're actually lined up and we know which two belongs with this, which animal. So. Yeah, there's a couple different. I've seen a couple uh, different ways to do that. One is it, the TSUs. They'll come in a, a ten count yeah, uh, yeah. box. You can yeah. mark the sample unit with the tag number next to the to the tissue unit. Put it back in the box. Uh, we use the individual uh, envelopes. So I just yeah. take my my sticker from my microchip. I put it on the envelope. I write down yeah. the the gender, you know, there's only two, there's yeah. male, and, male and females. And, uh, you know, we, we get those, uh, tubes dropped right down in, and then we have individual ones. Um, so there's no confusion. They take them at yeah. the lab. They're like, Oh, we know exactly what this is. And I, I suspect, uh, that's how you, you, you'd like it. It's the best way to do it, but I will recommend as simple as it may sound, do not put tissue tubes in an envelope and mail them because when they roll through the mail service, they'll come flying out. So make sure they're in a box. Yeah. No, <laughs> they uh, get squished. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine, you know, they have rollers for those envelopes, right? Mm-hmm. At the mail office and they just get, they get oh, yeah. crushed in there. Oh yeah. yeah. It, it's happened. So, um, so yeah, use us, use the TSU tubes. Um, I want to touch on uh, a question that I heard. Uh, a couple times for people, they just wanted to talk about uh, turnaround time. So give us the sure. turnaround times um, for parentage and then for the GPS uh, PRNP testing. Yeah. So parentage, we're, we're saying three weeks. Um, d- during down times like May, it's, it's like clockwork. You know, we go from getting two or 3,000 samples to like 700 in May. It happens that way every year. So I tell my staff to enjoy it, enjoy their Memorial Day, because <laughs> come June, it's busy, and it's like clockwork, it picks yep. up. Um, it's, it's three weeks, and um, of course, if they're doing STRs, it may take a little longer, because um, our lab, GeneSeq, Neogen, has converted all their customers to SNP technology. There's only one other customer in the cattle business that uses them, but they're like us, so they don't have the staff, because it's two different staffs that processes those samples. Hmm. So if it's STRs, it may take a little longer because they don't have the staff dedicated to STRs that they do to SNPs because SNPs is what they do for all their customers, whether it be sheep, cattle, pig, deer, whatever. Um, So three weeks, um, barring no complications. In the busier season, it may take four weeks. That's why I tell people 
if if you want something for an auction like an auction coming up in august um you need to get them in now and um barring any complications or whatever um i think our customers are getting used to that i do know in the old days when we were just running strs and they were done in two weeks or less those days are probably gone um just the technology we use is, is, has a few more steps in it and it is what it is three weeks uh, cwd is four weeks and the reason it is is because um the, they're they're running it on two separate pieces of equipment so the, the old prion test you remember where we got the five markers that's still part of the cwd test that that's ran on a separate platform than the 50,000 chip marker. And so basically those, those two datas get merged together and then our scientists put them into this, this database and it spits out that GBV, but we have to do it on two separate platforms and it takes four weeks and it's nothing to do with backlog. It's just, that's how long it takes. And they have other customers, like for example, COVID tests are ran on these machines or food safety and food safety is a big deal. And so we're, we're not the biggest fish in the pond. And so we, we get in line with everybody else. And so four weeks is what they've promised us. Um, can it get slower? Yeah, during busy season, it may get slower, but I would never expect it to be less than four weeks. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, for folks that have submitted, and just, just to be clear, these lead times uh, that, that Gary's mentioning, these are, these are averages, right? These are, these are you know, like, Yep. Yeah, you might get something at uh, 21 days. You might get something at uh, 42, but generally speaking, we're looking yep. at three and four weeks. Um, so let's just say somebody have submitted some samples, right? They got their sure. parentage, you know, in, in a few weeks and they're waiting on the, the GBVs and right. eight weeks go by and they haven't gotten anything. What should they do? Um. They should definitely call us before eight weeks. I mean, if I was a customer, and we have a few, squeaky wheel gets to grease, right? Yeah. Um, that call us, you know, day after day one after three weeks, right? But I, I would call us after four weeks and just check with us and say, you know, where is my sample? And we have the ability to check with the laboratory based on that order number. We know where their order is in the process. We can say, hey it just started or hey it's at the end it's being reviewed so we we can kind of gauge that so yeah i would recommend they call us and just let us tell them i mean gosh eight weeks if it takes eight weeks that means we had problems right it means that we had to rerun it and in most cases if we have to rerun a sample we call the breeder and let them know just so they aren't surprised and i mean that is that is um you know procedure with nadar we, we don't let them guess we we call them and say it's rerunning now you know we could have three to five samples i mean five thousand samples at any given point in time so you know it's probably just a handful that we have to call the customers but we will call and contact them and let them know gotcha um so as far as uh number of samples what, what do you guys think you're going to run this year um total you know tests if you had to guess i think we could do thirty thousand this year that'll be the most ever yeah. Um, you think that there, and, and again, like it's, it's just an opinion, but you think that the uh, ability to have the SNPs and the CWD GPS is, is adding a lot of value for breeders? Yeah, I, I do. I think because they want data, right? They want information to manage their herd and it's the best way to get that data. And so I think if, if it's not beneficial, they're not going to do it. And 
but you know, I don't encourage our breeders to test every animal. I'm, I'm like, you know, you have to test the ones that you're going to breed with. Why, why waste your money testing things you're not going to breed with? I just tell them that up front. Um, yeah. So, you know, be selective in, in what you're sending us. And, um, but I think they're interested in the numbers. And I think as they get more, you know, breeding values back, it's going to dictate how they breed going forward, which could either increase or decrease how many samples they send in. Um, as far as uh, sending samples in, what are, you know, outside of like the samples themselves, um, is there, and we touched on this a little before, I know there's a, an electronic way to do that. There's also, you know, a, a manual way through the, through the mail. Can you just right. give us a rundown of what those look like? Yeah. So they, they can do old fashioned paperwork, send them in, um, you know, through the mail or whatever. Um, fill out the paperwork and, and then they can also do electronic, which is two, two ways. One is Excel spreadsheet that we have online. They can download it, put the information, and then they send that Excel to us via email and then they ship the samples or they can print it off and send it. But we still need the copy online because we, we download that into our database um, instead of having to manually key everything in. Um, and then you have GMS software, which some people use, and it's the same thing. Basically, they transmit it to us. Um, and we upload that data into our database. Um, you know, it's today it's 80, 90% of the people are using some type of electronic ways to get it to us. So we're not seeing a lot of manual samples, but as you know, being up North, we do have some Amish customers and, and they would prefer to do it that way. And we want to accommodate them. So we, we, we don't want to preclude anybody from doing it manually. Gotcha. Um, so I know that um, I'd referenced that there was obviously some new things that were, were going on in, in NADAR and, and you're kind of at the tip of the spear. Before we get to um, kind of the, the future of what NADAR looks like, can you just talk about um, kind of NADAR uh, as a whole and, and what it is? Because NADAR is obviously not just you. Um, you know, you have some staff, but there's also a board. Can you talk about the whole entity as a whole and, and how it's organized. Yeah. And you talk about like yeah. the board making decisions. What's that look sure. like? Give, give some perspective to people. Sure. So um, NADAR started in 2004 um, for the purposes of providing, you know, data and reliance on these animal pedigrees. Right. So we wanted to, to, to give validity. Right. Um, and to start that, we, ha we had to, to have a board. So we're a nonprofit 501c4, which is agriculture. And, and the reason we're that is because we don't want to be a profit, for-profit company. Um, and our, our board is made up of 12 board members. Um, well, take that back. 12 voting board members and two non-voting board members. Five of those board members are from Nadifa, and they're elected by Nadifa's board. Um, Five of those are from Texas Deer Association, as well elected by their board. Um, two are from Banados de Mexico, as elected by their board. And the two non-voting members are the executive directors of TDA and ADIFA, which currently um, Sean Schaefer and, and Kevin, who, who just started, gosh, um, probably last, last fall, I guess, um, so um, the, the boards also have rotating terms. So there, there's always a board member coming off from the DFA and from TDA every year and then rotating someone new back on or the board from those respective organizations can elect them to serve again for another term. I think they can serve up to three terms. 
So there's always someone coming off, someone coming on every year. And we did that on purpose, right? Because you want to always have the potential to bring in new people and new ideas. So uh, I've been involved with it one way or another since 2004. And um, sure, you, you still have some of the same people involved, but we, we've had new people rotate through and it's nice to have new ideas, right? Um, and so we're, we're always looking for people to serve on the board because you want their opinions. Um, our board member, members run the gamut from, some of them do this full-time, some of them part-time, um, but that they all have in common, they love this industry. And so, and, and, and they wanna do what's right. Now you have different perspectives um, from certain breeders and why they're in the business, but they still wanna make it work. And so it's nice to get everybody's input. Um, we, we meet um, face-to-face twice a year. Um, we also have other meetings online, if, if necessary, like during COVID, we had to do that. Um, so, you know, a lot of nonprofits or a lot of, lot of board involved companies can, can operate in two separate ways. Some of them are board led, some of them are management led. Um, I, I would say we're board directed and management led. So the board lays out their, their, their rules for the year and, and their strategies and operations. And then I run it as the CEO, if you will. And, you know, I, I don't get a lot of um, micromanagement, if you will. They, they let me run this organization, but also I make sure that I'm doing it in lines with what they want. And um, our, our meetings are open to the public. So people can come in and ask us questions. Our financials are, are publicized in that meeting. And so people know what we have, what we don't have, what we're doing, what we're not doing. So our goal is to be transparent to everybody. So they feel like that they have a group that is supporting them. Um, and our staff, of course, are made up of scientists and office people. And, um, you know, we, we have um, two people that have been with the registry for over 10 years. And so a lot of longevity, um, you know, with us. And so we understand it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a great group of people, a great group of people who understand the business and want what's best for those deer breeders. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I can appreciate the, um, you know, the experience and longevity uh, from people that have participated in the registry. Um, they can always bring context to conversations. And, and I think that that really um, leads to uh, an, an overall better place for the decisions that get made. And, and we yeah. find that we find that a lot with our, you know, like our state association that I'm, I'm involved with, like, it's, it's good to have uh, some fresh faces and new ideas. Yeah. It's good to have some, some old, uh, old haggards there that are, yeah. uh, or, or stalwarts that are, that are kind of like, Hey, we, we did that like 15 years ago and it yeah. didn't work. And maybe we should look at that. So no, yeah. it's good to hear. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, okay. So in, in wrapping up, I want to talk about kind of what the, the future has in store for us with NADAR, what okay. we in the servant industry uh, can expect. And I don't have anything specific, uh, but, you know, like lay, lay it on us. We, we want to hear it. Well, I think that um, first and foremost, you know, we've been working on a fallow SNP platform for a couple of years, but it had, to, it had to get delayed because of COVID for two reasons. Um, one, we didn't have the resources. Our scientific guys didn't have the resources. Um, and two, white-tailed deer take priority for this registry because they they are the ones that are bringing in the most revenue, right? 
but but you know we we brought in mule deer and we now do snips for them it's changed their lives because they were using strs as well and it didn't work and we had a lot of questions about fallow the same thing they they do have a registry right now that they're using they're using strs and they're having the same issues even worse than whitetail because everything's such tightly bred right so they ask us to develop an assay, which we have, and we're in the process right now doing the R&D. We expect it to also be released late summer, early fall. And we, we have had some complaints. Hey, you promised this two years ago, and we had to get started without you. And we, we get it. We understand. And um, we just couldn't choose fallow over whitetail. We had to push CWD was our priority, right? That that was affecting the industry. But now, now we're able to do that. And so effective this fall, we'll be offering fallow deer to our breeders. Um, and so we'll see what happens. And again, it's, I don't, as of today, I don't think it's going to bring in the number of samples that whitetail do, but the North American Deer Registry was named for that reason, to provide services to all cervid and not just whitetail. And we'll continue to do that. And if people want to do red deer and there's a market, we'll do it. If they want to do access and there's a market, we'll do it. It's just a matter of when that market is. I, I think the, the R&D, though, isn't going to be focused on those animals as much as it is going to be disease states as well. So I think our next board meeting, we'll have that discussion. What's next, right, besides CWD? Is it EHD, which on the surface, it sounds like it's easy to do, but it's, it's going to be harder because you have to be able to prove that that animal died from EHD in order to use that sample to determine what its markers are. And we know with that disease that there's other contributing factors that cause an animal's death. It may not be just EHD. And so that'll be the challenge for that disease. But I, I see that, that coming. And it's like the cattle industry. Right now, all these breeders run this, this SNP assay and they can provide numerous data points, right? Feed out ratio, all these things that they can help make decisions when that baby is like eight days old. And so I hope that happens for us, that we can start providing information to these breeders. And it's not just CWD, it's multiple disease issues or feed out or whatever, that, that we can get to that point to where we can provide that data. Because we know the economy is a struggle at times and it's expensive to raise deer and anything we can do to make it less expensive, to make them make decisions would help them. That's awesome to hear about the, uh, the fowl industry. I know that um, there's, there's many folks over there that have um, you know, looked at the, call it, you know, uncertainty of, of perhaps whitetail business or the mule deer business and said, Hey, we want to, we want to diversify our allocation of, of cervids on our property, uh, to include fallow. And yeah. we've, we've seen that, that industry grow and grow. Um, you know, I think mainly because of that. And of course, you know, they have, um, they have, uh, good quality meat and uh, trophy value as well. Yeah. So yeah. those are, are contributing factors and economic drives this economics drives those decisions uh, to do that. So it's good. To, it's good to see you guys working on that. Well, and also just note, and you know, this is that there hasn't been any, any proof that fallow deer can contract CWD. And so that's another reason people are migrating um, to fallows because supposedly they, they, they haven't contracted CWD. Yep. And obviously CWD is always the topic of the day for yeah. uh, the cervid industry, no matter what you're talking about, yeah. it ends up devolving into a, a chronic racing disease conversation. Uh, yeah. Did we miss anything before we wrap up? No, I'll, I'll just say that again, I mean, NADAR is not political and we, we don't push any agenda. We, 
we do what the industry wants us to do. And so if, if the industry gets together and says, we want to measure this trade or whatever, we'll do it as long as there's business to be made. And so our job is to do what the industry requests us to do, not to dictate what's being done. Well, I appreciate the, uh, the conversation here today. I know that our, our listeners and, and watchers uh, certainly do as well and uh, appreciate your, your candid conversation that we had. So thanks for coming on. Thank and as always, as always, folks, stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.